1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, that is found on page 961. Once more, we are reading first from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for this word that has just been read We are asking now for the preaching of this word, for it to penetrate our hearts by your Holy Spirit shaping us to think and to feel and to behave more like your son, Jesus. Pray all this for your glory, for our good, and in Jesus' name, amen. The greatest danger to a church's gospel witness is usually not what's explicitly taught on Sunday mornings or in midweek gatherings. When you look at churches that have abandoned the gospel, it's not as if heresy were introduced to the congregation and then suddenly everyone was just led astray. That's not how it happens. Most churches are resilient enough to to resist heretical teaching. You see, the danger, friends, is that The danger is typically not found in what is explicitly taught. The danger is found in what is implicitly assumed. Churches find themselves in trouble when they don't have a pattern or priority of regularly proclaiming the gospel message to their people. And it's because they assume that everyone already knows it. In other words... The church that is at most at risk of abandoning the gospel is the church that has formed the habit of assuming the gospel. Assuming that the gospel is just a message primarily for seekers to hear. That it has to do with the basics that you need to believe in order to become a Christian. But once you've accepted that, once you've received those truths, then the gospel is uh, something you can just kind of put aside and you can move on to meatier topics You can explore deeper truths. And this is why in such churches, 
The gospel is rarely proclaimed in their preaching and teaching. It's usually reserved for perhaps a a special evangelistic meeting they're going to hold or for a special evangelistic Sunday school or small group that they've organized. Now, that church still believes the gospel. No one is denying the gospel in that church, but everyone is simply assuming it. And that's a dangerous position to be in. Because you're just one generation removed from confusing the gospel to outright abandoning it altogether. And that's a sad story of many historic churches and denominations in our country. One generation proclaimed the gospel. The next assumed the gospel, resulting in the next generation confusing the gospel, and the generation after that abandoning the gospel altogether. Well, friends... This pattern of church decline, this pattern of gospel abandonment, it stretches back all the way to the early church, all the way to the first century. Because the church in Corinth also faced this same danger. Here in chapter 15, Paul addresses some some bad theology that's going around in the church, some false teaching that's related to our Christian future hope. But he begins chapter 15 here in our text, as read just, just now, with an explicit proclamation of the gospel. He wants to forefront the very message that the Corinthians had been assuming, that they had left in the background. Listen again to verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And that's what we find In our text, in verses 1 to 11, he is explaining explicitly the gospel. This morning's passage is a faithful account of the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected. And Paul felt compelled to explicitly lay out the facts of the gospel because in this church it had gone assumed for far too long. Because they they weren't regularly talking about these things. They weren't talking about the resurrection of Christ and meditating on its implications. That explains why now they're willing to entertain some bad theology regarding the Christian's future resurrection. Some were told here that some in the church were denying the reality of a future bodily resurrection for Christians. They were confusing things. They were confusing the gospel. And if they don't recover it, if they don't begin to faithfully proclaim it, they're at risk of eventually abandoning the gospel altogether. That, my friends, is what's at stake. As much as for the church in Corinth, as for us. And that's why, this morning, I want us to focus on this gospel making it explicit, just as Paul does in our text. So what we're going to do is we're going to consider three aspects of the Christian gospel. If you want to follow along, look inside your bulletin. You'll see an outline. Here are the three aspects we're going to consider. First, the nature of the gospel. Second, the heart of the gospel. And third, the grace of the gospel. So let's begin by considering the nature of the gospel. And I I, I have four observations to make that come from verses 1 to 2. Four observations about our gospel. Let's read verses 1 to 2 again, though. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. 
Now note how, first, the gospel is good news to be preached. It's good news to be preached. That's, that's what the word gospel actually means in the original Greek. It literally means good news. Now, think about what we're implying when we describe the gospel as news. Like when you pick up a, pick up a newspaper. When you pick up a newspaper, what do you generally expect to be reading? You expect to read about events that have already taken place. Now, it could have just taken place a day before, or it could have been a few weeks or months before. Regardless, news is about past events that have some significance to our present. Otherwise, it wouldn't be newsworthy. That's why it is such a tragic mistake when people start treating the gospel more like good advice. Like when someone offers you good advice, what they're communicating to you, what they're assuming, is that you can do it. You can follow their advice. You can fulfill that advice. You just need someone to point you in the right direction. And it's a lot like reading the uh, self-help column that you might find in a newspaper. But that's not gospel. The self-help column is not news. News is about past events that have present-day significance. And when it comes to the Christian gospel, of course, we're talking about the good news of what the Son of God, what Jesus Christ accomplished in the past in order to redeem sinners like us from the present effects of our sin and its future consequences. That's the good news. Those are the past events that we are talking about. Well, friends, I would argue that this idea of the Christian message fundamentally being about news, about past events with present-day significance, this is what makes Christianity stand out from all other world religions or all other worldviews that essentially concern themselves with self-help, about how to improve your life, teaching you how to become a better version of yourself. Christianity is about proclaiming good news. Every other worldview is just offering you good advice. I mean, just think about how this word for preaching that's found in verses 1 and 2, think about how this word would have been used back then in the first century context. The, the verb for preaching here is actually the verb form for the same word for gospel. So Paul, literally, if you want to translate this very literally, he is saying, I want to remind you of the gospel that I gospeled to you. Preaching is about gospeling. It's about announcing good news. And in Paul's day, the typical use of this term would have been uh, a military herald being sent back to the capital city to give a report on the outcome of a battle. These heralds were gospelers in the fact that they were there to announce good news that the battle is won. The victory is yours, so be filled with peace and joy and now live in light of this good news. That's what a gospeler, that's what a herald would have been sent to do. But if there is no victory, if the battle is being dragged out, if the outcome doesn't look so good, then instead of sending a herald with news, they'll send back a military advisor 
with advice on how to survive. Get out of the city. Save yourself. Or else sharpen your sword and get ready to fight for yourself. They're going to get they're going to they're going to give you advice. It's not going to be news. So my point friends is that there is a very big difference between good news and good advice. And what makes the Christian faith a gospel faith is that we have good news to preach about a victory, about a salvation that has already taken place, that has already been accomplished for you. It's not about helping yourself. It's not about saving yourself. It is about hearing and responding and now living in light of this great good news. So the gospel is good news to be preached. Here's a second observation. The gospel is an apostolic tradition to be received. An apostolic tradition to be received. This, my friends, has to do with the faithful preservation of this gospel message. Notice how Paul says, I'm here to remind you of the gospel that I gospeled to you, which you received. Now that Greek word there is a technical term referring to the reception of a tradition that has been handed down to you. It's the same word that he uses in verse 3, where he's describing there a message that he received. And so essentially he, he is passing on to the Corinthians the same body of teaching that he himself received. And the point here is that your job is to receive it and to pass it along. You are not at liberty to tweak or to change what you received. Our job is to receive the message and faithfully turn around and preach the message. We're called to take what we have heard and to entrust it to faithful believers who are able to teach others also. We, we are supposed to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. If you think about it, an ancient herald is a lot like a, a modern-day spokesperson or a press secretary. I mean, just, just think about the president's press secretary. Like, the press secretary isn't given every day some word-for-word -word script of, 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 uh, from, written by the president for, for, uh, for her to take into, um, you know, the, the room, and, and all she does is just read word-for-word -word what was given to her. No, that, that's, that's not how... It typically works. I mean, she has actually freedom to, to use her own words and to use her own expressions as long as she is faithfully proclaiming the message or the agenda that she received from the president. She doesn't have the freedom to adjust that. And the same goes, my friends, for us. I mean, every Christian, as described in Scripture, is an ambassador for Christ. We are like his press secretaries. We are like his spokespeople, we have been given a message of reconciliation, and we are to go forth and to proclaim that message of reconciliation about how to be reconciled with God and with each other. And so your, your choice of words and the way you deliver that message, the, the expressions you use, you know, just the overall presentation, it may sound very different than me and how I would do it. There's liberty there, but we don't have the liberty to change the underlying gospel message of reconciliation. Now, to be fair, here in our text, at this point, the Corinthians had not yet abandoned the apostolic tradition that they had received, at least not yet, especially when it comes to the resurrection. 
So Paul's not actually correcting them on the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. He's actually reminding them of their shared conviction. But the problem is that they weren't reflecting on that gospel truth. They were just assuming it, and that's why it made them susceptible to error on a related doctrine. And this leads us to our third observation regarding the nature of the gospel. First, it's good news to be preached. Second, it's an apostolic tradition to be received. Third, the gospel is a solid foundation to be stood upon. A solid foundation to be stood upon. Paul reminds them of the gospel in which you stand. And the point here is that if you are building up your theology with the gospel of Jesus Christ as your foundation, then, friends, you cannot go wrong. But if your theological views are founded on the wisdom of this world or on the philosophies of man, well, then you are at risk of theological error, and you're more at risk of confusing the gospel and of outright abandoning it. And this is what was happening among the Corinthians. Paul was compelled to write this entire chapter. Chapter 15 is, all, is written because he had heard a report that some in the church were claiming that there is no resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So no one in the church was saying that Christ was not raised from the dead. No one's denying the resurrection, at least not yet. But some were denying the idea that Christians will one day experience a future bodily resurrection similar to Christ. Instead, what they were advocating for was some sort of spiritualized experience of life after death. They, they, were, they were thinking about a, a disembodied existence. So the whole point of chapter 15 is to argue that our life after death will be an embodied experience in a resurrected body. That's what we're going to be looking at in the next couple weeks as we go through this chapter. That's his main argument. But here, this morning, in our text, Paul is not trying to convince them of Christ's resurrection. No, he's arguing that if that is your foundation then how in the world can you deny a future resurrection? That's the, the logic. Notice in verse 12 of his question. His, his, the logic is, if you believe this, how can you then deny that? But apparently, apparently the gospel was not the foundation that they were building their theology upon. Apparently, they were far too dependent upon Greek philosophy. You see, commentators point out that these Gentile believers were probably too influenced by Platonic thought, that is, the, the teachings of Plato, particularly the idea that, the, that physical existence is inherently inferior to spiritual existence. Uh, so that, that's, that's for, for the, the idea that, that the ancient Greeks um, embraced, this idea that, that, that salvation in their concept would have been understood as an escape from the physical realm. So my body would be viewed at best as a shell, at worst, as a prison house for the soul. And so you can see why Greeks would instinctively reject the idea of a future bodily resurrection. That idea would have been very unappealing to them. Why would I want to be reunited with my shell? 
Why would I want to be reunited with my former prison house? That's how they responded to this idea of being raised from the dead. And this is why Paul spends the first 11 verses of this chapter retreading the foundational truths of the gospel, especially of the resurrection. Because if you truly believe that Christ has been bodily raised, if that is part of your theological foundation, then you will inevitably reject this errant teaching about our Christian future. So keep holding fast to this gospel you have received. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. Because only this gospel that you have received has the power to save you to the very end. And this leads to our fourth observation in verse two. Look at verse two. And by which, excuse me, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel is good news to be preached, an apostolic tradition to be received, a solid foundation to stand upon, and fourth, the power of God that is saving you. The gospel is the power of God that is saving you. Christian salvation, if you want to properly grasp it, you need to understand it in three tenses. In in one glorious sense, Christians have been saved in the past tense. We have been delivered from our sins by the finished work of Christ. We are eternally secure because of Jesus. But as we see here, Scripture also speaks in terms of Christians being saved, that is, in the present tense, which is why it's so vital that we actively hold on to the gospel which we have received. I mean, perhaps for you, you heard the gospel when you were much younger, and and that's when, when you assented to these gospel truths. But Paul's point is that if you're not still holding fast to these truths right now in the present, well, I'm sorry, but you have believed in vain. Meaning your abandonment of the gospel in the present is exposing the vanity of your gospel confession in the past. And that, my friends, is why knowing the events surrounding your conversion, surrounding that that time when you first trusted in the gospel, that's good. That's helpful. If you know that, if you can recall your conversion moment, wonderful. But you know what? What's so much more important is whether or not you are holding on to the gospel today. Are you trusting in it right now? And again, this is why a church should never assume the gospel. We can't just assume all of you already know it, so there's no need to to go over it again and and, and talk about it again. No, we have to keep preaching the gospel from this pulpit, and you have to to keep preaching the gospel to yourself on a regular basis. We have to keep remembering to hold fast to it. We do so not out of fear of losing our salvation. No, we do so in hope that we will be saved in the future tense. By God's grace, we have been saved. By God's grace, we are being saved. And by God's grace, we will be saved in the sense of making it to the end, of finishing the race, of keeping the faith. God will preserve his own. That, my friends, is our confidence. 
So we keep preaching the gospel to you so that you keep holding fast to the gospel. And that's all based on the conviction that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So those are the four observations regarding the nature of the gospel that you can just unpack from those two verses there in verses 1 and 2. Now, if we move on to look at verses 3 to 7, here Paul reveals the heart of the gospel. The truths that he records in these few verses, Paul says he considers them to be of first importance. They are the first things. That means all biblical truths are important, but apparently some are more important. Some are more central than others. They comprise the heart of the gospel. Let me read again, starting verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So here at the heart of the gospel, we see two central truths. First, Christ died and was buried for our sins according to the scriptures. And second, Christ was raised on, and appeared on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's consider this first truth, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried. Now let's consider his burial first. His burial is presented really as proof that Jesus truly did die. Because we only bury corpses. We don't bury living bodies that still have a faint pulse. So burial is to emphasize the finality of his death. But the stress here is, of course, on his death and how it was a vicarious death. That is, it was done on our behalf. It was done vicariously. Christ represented us in death. When he died, we died. His death is counted as our death. That's what it means for him to die a vicarious death for us. And that, my friends, in and of itself is a glorious truth. But the gospel offers us even better news than that. Not only did Christ die on our behalf as our representative, doing something that for us so that we wouldn't have to do it for ourselves, not only did he do that for us, he also died once for all in our place as our substitute, doing for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. He bore the full wrath of God. He took on the full weight of the punishment for sin. Friends, you have to understand that there is a, a subtle but still profound difference between Christ serving as your representative and Christ serving as your substitute. Both are true. Both are glorious. But just think about it this way. Think about the high priest in the Jewish temple. The high priest serves as a representative. He enters the Holy of Holies. He offers up sacrifices representing 
Israel. But he's not Israel's substitute. He doesn't take their punishment. He doesn't bear the wrath. He's only their representative who is responsible to bring their substitute to the altar. The substitute, in that case, is the bull. It's the goat. It's the animal that is killed, that is sacrificed. So what makes Jesus the great high priest is that he is both the representative and the substitute. He serves as both the priest and the sacrifice. He, as priest, offers himself up as substitute on the altar, on the cross, dying for our sins. And Paul says all of that was in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. Man, so much is packed in just that one simple phrase. It is suggesting that Christ's death on the cross was a fulfillment of a much larger redemptive plan that began all the way in the beginning of the Old Testament. Now, it's not clear if he had particular verses in mind. Was he thinking of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant? We don't know exactly what he was thinking of. Maybe Paul was just saying that Jesus more generally fulfills the biblical motif of a substitutionary sacrifice dying in the place of others. I mean, that motif is found throughout the Old Testament. It began all the way in Genesis chapter 3, where we read of an animal that is killed so that Adam and Eve's shame is now covered up by the animal's skin. The need for a substitute carries on over to Exodus chapter 12, where we learn of a Passover lamb that dies in the place of Israel's firstborn son, firstborn sons. And then... This motif is codified in Levitical law with the Day of Atonement, where on an annual basis, substitutionary sacrifices were made in order to take away the sins of Israel that were committed in the past year. So in accordance to all of that, in accordance to this entire scriptural pattern and motif, Christ died for sin. And the good news of the gospel is that his substitutionary sacrifice was once for all, meaning you don't need to repeat it annually. And it, and, it, and it took away the sin, not just of Israel, it took away the sin of the world. That's how much better his sacrifice was. So that, my friends, is the first central gospel truth. Christ died and was buried for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, Christ was raised and appeared on the third day according to the scriptures. Look at verse 4 again. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he goes on to describe a few more appearances. Now again, like with his burial, the mention of his appearance is meant to serve as proof that he truly did rise from the dead. Like, he, he came back in a body. He, he didn't come back, uh, you know, as a phantom, as a ghost. No, he returned in a body, a resurrected body. And that's such an important point for Paul to make because it, it's the ground upon which he is going to argue for the rest of this chapter for a future bodily resurrection for every single person who trusts in Christ. 
Well, the central truth of Christ's resurrection is what he says is of first importance. Not just because it did happen and Christians are people committed to speaking the truth of what happened. Not just because of that. No, this is of first importance because of what his resurrection signifies, especially for those of us who are hoping in him. Because Christ's work on the cross, because if it wasn't for the resurrection, his work on the cross, you know, dying for our sins as our representative and as our substitute, all of that would be in vain if he had not been raised. Paul's going to state that very fact in verse 17. Later on, he's going to make the case that your faith is futile and that you are still in your sins if Christ has not been raised. You are still doomed to condemnation. And all of Jesus' promises to you, they would prove to be empty. If Christ has not been raised, now that means he's a false prophet. He's a failed Messiah. Church, our entire faith hinges on the truthfulness of this single statement. Jesus is alive today in a resurrected body seated at the Father's right hand. Jesus is alive today in a resurrected body seated at the Father's right hand. That is our confidence. That is our hope. Why are we so confident in the truthfulness of that statement? Because there are witnesses. The most important witness and most authoritative witness is that of Scripture, the witness of the, the Word of God. Paul says the resurrection is in accordance with the Scriptures. He probably had in mind Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 16, verse 10 is actually one of the most quoted of Old Testament texts in the New Testament, always in regards to the resurrection. This is the go-to text that the apostles would turn to to show that the resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. This is where God says that he's not going to abandon his Messiah to Sheol, to the place of the dead, or he's not going to let his Holy One see corruption. He's not going to rot in a grave. Or he could have been thinking of maybe verses like Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2, where it alludes to God raising up Israel on the third day. And so there are various other texts that, that he could have been thinking of. But in, a, in addition to the Old Testament being a witness to the resurrection, verses 5 to 8 say there were also many eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Cephas, that's referring to the Apostle Peter. Uh, you also have the 12, uh, the, the, the 12 uh, uh, disciples or apostles. In this case, at this point, not including Judas. Uh, later on, he was replaced by Matthias. Also, he talks about more than 500 people at the same time. Perhaps the occasion he was thinking of is at the end of, of, of Matthew, uh, when Jesus is about to be um, ascend, ascend to heaven. It does, does describe a large gathering of disciples. Paul says most of these 500 are still alive, implying that, hey, readers, you can go and corroborate my claim by talking to these people. They're the eyewitnesses. And Christ also, it says here, appeared to James, that's referring to Jesus' brother, and to all the apostles. Remember what we said earlier about how unappealing the concept of a resurrection would have been to first century Greeks, how they would have instinctively rejected that idea? Well, think about this. 
If Paul were merely concocting a story, if he, were part, if he was part of some vast conspiracy, if he was just after easy conversions and just amassing a big following, then why would he make the resurrection of Christ a central truth of first importance? Why would he place it at the very heart of his gospel? The only reasonable explanation is that it really happened. And there were plenty of eyewitnesses, Paul himself being one of them. And this leads to the third aspect of the gospel for us to consider, an aspect that is powerfully illustrated in Paul's own life story, that is the grace of the gospel. Let's read starting in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So Paul is numbering himself among the apostles of Christ, because he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he has already, in this letter, defended his apostleship uh, in previous chapters. So Paul is an apostle. He is very um, uh, uh, confident in that, but he at the same time knows he's not like the rest of the apostles. He describes himself here as being untimely born. The term there in the Greek refers to a premature baby. I know it's, it's a graphic illustration, but it's a very fitting description. Because all the other apostles, they knew Jesus when he was on earth. They learned at his feet for up to three years during the days of his earthly ministry. They had plenty of gestation time. They were in the womb, if you will, for quite a while. So they were full-term apostles. But Paul was a preemie. Paul had no time for gestation because after seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was immediately sent to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so in Paul's eyes, he knows he's the runt of the litter. But not only because of his untimely birth, but also because he's the only apostle who once was an enemy to the church, a persecutor of the church. And that's why he considers himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called one. In his other letters, he describes himself as the very least of all the saints, Ephesians 3.8. Or he describes himself as the foremost among sinners, the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. All because... Again, in those instances, he keeps saying, it's because I once persecuted the church. So Paul evaluates himself with sober judgment. He doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought. But friends, that doesn't mean that Paul suffers from low self-esteem. He doesn't go around torturing himself out of self-hate. No, Paul soberly judges himself through the lens of, of the gospel of grace. Look at verse 10 again. But by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. Paul sees himself as a pure product of God's grace. Like he, he, he knows his past, right? He, he knows what he has done. He knows his sins. But he doesn't allow those past identities to define him anymore. Notice he's not saying, I am a rebel against God. I am a persecutor of the church. No, that's what he once was. He was a product of sin. But no longer. Paul says, by God's grace, I am what I am. I am an apostle. The least of the apostles, but still, that's what I am. I'm a product of grace. And friends, I hope you see, the good news of the gospel is that that same grace is available to you. Like You don't have to be defined by your past. I hope you understand that if you embrace this gospel, if you receive Christ, you don't have to be defined by your worst mistake or by your greatest shame. If you come to Christ, if you receive his grace, if you become a Christian, sure, sure, you may not be yet what you ought to be. You may not be yet what you hope to be, but be sure of this, you are not what you once were. You can be confident and say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am today. You are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High King. You are beloved. You're a Christian. That's what you are by God's grace. And the amazing thing about God's grace is that it doesn't lead you to take your foot off the gas, to just take it easy. On the contrary, look, Paul says, it's because of God's grace at work in him, that's why he worked harder than the other apostles. And friends, that's not a boast. He's not boasting here. He's he's not trying to take credit for any gospel growth that's happening in Corinth uh, compared to other people like Cephas or Paulus. Look, 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 look at verse 11. He says, it doesn't matter who preached to you the gospel. What only matters is are you believing in it? Are you holding fast to it? It doesn't matter who plants the seed. It doesn't matter who waters it because in the end, it's God who gives the growth. So church, let's respond to the gospel of grace properly. Let's use God's gospel, or God's grace, as motivation to work even harder, to make even more of an effort to preach and teach the gospel more explicitly and more regularly whenever we gather together as the church, whether that's on Sundays or that's in your small groups or that's in your homes as a family, let's not ever become a church that assumes the gospel. Let's always remain a church centered on the gospel. Let's pray. Father, do this in our life. Make us and keep us as that gospel-centered church, a church that never assumes that we have had enough talk of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, but a church that always explicitly and consistently 
holds up Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended, and Christ coming again as our only hope, our hope and the hope of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.